Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. John, you know, we've been doing this such a long time that we see stuff come round and round and round again. And we've just seen one of those things that we've seen before. And last time we thought that's a really bad idea. It turned out to be a really bad idea. We thought we'd never see it again. And here it is, the 100% mortgage. Yeah, finance is the worst merry-go-round ride in the world, I think. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the one there is... A slight difference between this 100% mortgage and the ones that were getting launched the last time the housing market crashed. Small mercies. It is a small mercy because I think the problem is that you 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 see this happening and it's a great bit of publicity for the people who come out with it first. Um, and also this particular mortgage has got quite a lot of restrictions on it and that you can only have it if you've been renting for a certain amount of time and you can only have it up to the monthly payment on your rent so the thesis is obviously if you can afford to keep paying your rent then you might as well pay rent to the bank instead but it's just it's just a sign that whenever there is basically basically just credit kind of finds a way um and you know the bank credit finds a way it's like a song title yeah yeah we're in the wrong business <laughs> should that's chat gpt to put together a song based on that, <laughs> see what it comes up with. But listen, I this 100% mortgage, that sounds perfectly reasonable. If you can afford to pay rent, then you can afford to pay the mortgage. And it is the building up of deposits that's so impossibly hard for people. You haven't got well-off parents who can give you a deposit. Why shouldn't you have this mortgage? Why shouldn't you? What's the problem here? Well, I suppose the problem is that um, the, the fact that you need products like this to be launched points to a deeper problem with the housing market which is that it's overvalued and generally speaking eventually overvalued things come down so if you get a 100% mortgage and you buy a house and then it loses money then you're immediately in negative equity um, and also these things are the maximum and, and in fact the sort of the implied standard sort of maturity, so um, duration should take this out over, it's like a 35-year mortgage rather than a 25-year one. And this has been sort of quietly creeping up over the last kind of two or three years particularly, the the length of time that people are having to take home loans over. And I just don't think that's healthy. You know, we, we keep on carping on about how we get a pending pension crisis because you know, young people don't save enough into their pensions but now we're sort of encouraging them to take 35 year mortgages as well and I mean I know there's the there's the theory that whenever as you get older you earn more and therefore you'll cut 
the loan size down. But that is almost certainly not going to happen given that people who are trading up are also needing to extend their mortgage term as well to be able to afford the payments. So Sure, John. But, you know, at the moment we have the gift of inflation. And so gradually these debts will be eroded away. And if we have inflation running at 5% for a decade, that mortgage will look like small change by the time the people who bought this stuff hit, you know, their mid-30s. That's a very good argument. I hope you'll be encouraging your youngins to take out the 100% mortgage when they come of age. Mm, that'll be a while. Um, I tell you that the thing that worries me, I mean, I, I do see the positives of this, I really do. But the thing that, that worries me is this idea of people being in negative equity. I mean, what we remember from the early 1990s is that negative equity, and from, from 2007-8-9, is that negative equity is the most awful feeling for people. And it was resolved very quickly, as we know, in the 2000s. But in the early 90s, it was really hard. And it's it's very debilitating. It imprisons you. It can it can lead to really nasty, unpleasant life outcomes of being in a uh, in a position of negative equity with your house, and that is something I would really, really hate to happen to another generation of house buyers. So that's my big worry about it. I can totally see it in cash flow terms, but in terms of the potential for negative equity, I mean, anyone thinking of taking some of the one of these out might go and talk to some of the people stuck in help to buy homes because that's nasty too. Yeah, that's a good point. The the help to buy. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how that all pans out over the next few years. No, I mean, I suppose one thing we can say, John, one thing we can say is that so far property prices are defying your gloomy outlook. Yeah, exactly. I think they will. I think that the this is where, I guess, the 100% mortgage thing comes back in. Um, it is that point about... There are, there are, whenever... I've been writing about this. I've been saying there's a few ways that this could be wrong. And one is that basically people either take out loans over a longer period of time, and that means that although it's, the interest rates are higher, you can still, you get the same the same monthly payment will buy you a larger amount of capital. Um, or the, the kind of lending conditions can loosen. And although this isn't much of a loosening at the moment, I think it's reasonable to expect that if it takes off, then given that there's competition between the banks, um, and at the end of the day, they do want to write business, and they would rather write business against property, you know, business that's asset-backed, rather than non-asset-backed business to you know small firms or something like that. Um, so I, I can certainly see a race to the bottom kicking off again. Um, and then you know, all that means is that, again, you get the, the, the overall consumer will get overstretched. Uh, house prices won't, affordability won't correct, and then you'll just get a bigger correction further down the line. Um, maybe in line with the 18-year property cycle that we've discussed occasionally before here. Yeah, that sounds about... It sounds increasingly likely as the, as the weeks go past, doesn't it? But one other positive thing that could happen is that wages in the UK catch up with inflation. So we have inflation eroding debt, wages catching up with inflation, and we're all good. This is possible, right? I mean, I think that is possible, and that, that would be good. Um, but for that, you need prices. You still need prices to go up at a slower rate than wage inflation. And to be fair, at the moment, that is happening. Um, I think the the risk is that if you simultaneously get kind of credit being loosened um then 
you know, you, you might end up kind of losing the benefit because people will still be chasing house prices a lot higher. And I suppose this is partly where I start to have sympathy with the people that say, I say we just do need to build more and build better. I don't think that that's the, the main driving force behind prices, but I do think that um, I, you know, I, I move towards kind of building more and making planning restrictions less. Look at that, everybody. A bit of backtracking there from John, maybe heading towards <laughs> compromise with the people who he says he doesn't agree with. We're getting there. But listen, before we get started on building more and building better, there's a, a, a vague possibility we might build more, but I'll tell you what, I see absolutely no possibility that our house builders will build better. That isn't ever going to happen. I need more Bad competition. People. They need more competition. Everybody needs more competition. Welcome to Merrin Talks Money, the podcast in which people who know the markets explain the markets. I'm Merrin Zamzet-Webb. This week, a conversation with Daria Perkins, Managing Director on the Global Macro Team at TS Lombard. Daria, thank you so much for joining us today. I hugely appreciate it. No worries. Always good to see you. You are now an expert on recessions, and we are going to talk today about something you've recently written on the extent to which the next recession is going to hurt and what it might mean for markets. So I wondered if we could start just by talking about what a recession actually is, because it's a super scary word, but it actually covers sort of vast range of things from uh, a recession can be almost nothing and it can be absolutely hideous. So when you say recession, what is it you mean? Well, I mean, that's the that's the sort of debate right now, isn't it? I mean, we've been having, we've been having this debate for almost 12 months now. I mean, 12 months ago, we had two quarters of negative GDP growth in the US. Everyone was saying, oh, my God, it's a technical recession and arguing about that word technical. And I think, you know, what we're really talking about is a sort of broad based and persistent decline in activity. And by persistent, I mean more than a few months. And a technical recession, that two quarters of negative GDP growth doesn't really capture what a recession is about, because I think ultimately recession is a process rather than an event. And so what's really the key to it, I think, is the labour market, because the sort of classic recessionary process is that companies start to fire workers. And so then confidence goes down, spending goes down. That leads back into lower corporate revenues. And then you get more rounds of job cuts. And that, I think, is the sort of classic reflexivity of a recession. And that's why when this process starts to happen, it becomes very nonlinear. And so if you look at the history of recessions, you get this huge variation in the severity of recessions, both over time and across countries, because you know how quickly that sort of dynamic of job losses kicks in really varies in different countries. So if you're you know, German or Japanese company, it's so expensive to fire people and then hire them back that you, you sort of delay that decision as long as you can. Whereas in the US, you tend to get much quicker uh, decisions to fire people. So you get much more of a sort of V-shaped, uh, you know, a quick downturn, and then you tend to get quicker recoveries too. And in the UK? I mean, it's pretty easy to fire people here, isn't it? If their job is redundant. Yeah, well, it's it's... It's it's harder um, than it is in the US. Um, so it, as always, the, the UK is sort of in between uh, Europe and the US. But if you think about somewhere like Italy, um, you know, you can end up paying people two years severance. Now, you don't get that in the UK. 
but you do normally need a sort of good decision for firing, you know, a, a, a good reason for firing people. That's why you tend to have these sort of complicated redundancy processes and, and all of that stuff. So it's, it's sort of in between. God, two years. You might think it was um, better just not to hire people in the first place. Well, that I mean, that's exactly what happens, isn't it? That's why you, you tend to get these sort of very slow recoveries because as the economy starts to improve, companies want to be really sure that it's genuinely improving. And, you know, you just get this very different dynamic between Europe and the, and the US. I like the way you, you describe it as a process, not an event. I think, don't we describe Brexit like that as well, don't we? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, um, it's that sort of old, joke about pornography you know you can't define it but you know it when you see it and I think with a recession you know uh, a recessionary process when you're in one and that was why that argument last year about two quarters of technical GDP uh, contraction in the US was so silly because every month uh, US companies were hiring huge numbers of workers and that's not a recessionary dynamic and you know that's that's not what we're seeing now you know every uh, every payroll report in the US is quite positive uh, even in Europe, you know, you're still seeing sort of positive employment dynamics. That is not a recession. So we're not in a recession. Now, it's possible that that process starts to kick in. Uh, but I think it will be quite clear when it is kicking in. OK, so let's talk about the next recession then. The next recession is something that has been forecast for a very, very long time. Uh, and also lots of economists would have said that we should be in a recession by now in the US, in the UK, globally. This idea that there will be a probably quite mild global recession at some point in 2023 is almost universal. We don't get very many consensus on this type of thing, but everybody thinks there'll be a recession this year. And of course, that doesn't really mean anything because economists are famously bad at, at forecasting recession, right? But nonetheless, everyone expected something and it hasn't yet happened. Is it going to happen this year? And when it does, if it does, is it likely to be the mild recession everybody thinks or are they getting it completely wrong? Well, you're right that economists are hopeless at forecasting recessions. I mean, there's an IMF paper on this from a few years ago uh, saying that economists had failed to predict 148 of the last 153 recessions. So that sort of tells you. Um, when you look at sort of consensus forecasts for recessions, um, you know, we missed all of the sort of the big ones of the 80s, the 90s, uh, the 2000s. The, one, the last time economists actually forecast a recession correctly was back in the early 80s. And that was because Volcker raised interest rates to 20%. So even economists could figure out that that level of interest rates was going to kill the economy. And so that's exactly what happened. So ultimately, I think the recession call for this year is about, are we getting to the point where central banks are genuinely starting to break the economy? And, um, you know, I, I think what worries me uh, more in the sort of last couple of months than beforehand is that central banks seem to be losing control of this process. You know, they were, they are these control freaks. You know, they were raising interest rates quite quickly, but they were doing it in a sort of uh, measured and methodical way. You know, they were trying to squeeze the economy and, and reduce demand. But we've got to the point now where I don't think they're really in control of that process anymore. And the reason for that is, you know, what's been happening in the banking system. So suddenly, you know, we've got this very severe tightening in bank lending standards. And that is, you know, central banks really losing control because once you've got, you know, banks making the decisions about lending, uh, that's happening in a way that, you know, central banks can't really measure. You know, they have no idea what the sort of true effective, how 
effectively tight monetary policy is anymore. And they have no way of sort of calibrating it. So, you know, is this bank lending tightening? Is that worth 25 basis points on interest rates? Is it worth 150 basis points? They don't know. They have no clue. So what worries me is that I think there's been a lot of fake recession signals over the past 12 months. You know, we've had this big contraction in global manufacturing, this big uh, deterioration in leading indicators. I think that was always going to happen on the other side of COVID. You know, I've been saying for the last three years that we've been in this sort of fake business cycle. You know, we shut down the economy. We reopened the economy. There was nothing organic about that. There was nothing, you know, that, that wasn't a normal business cycle. That was a policy-induced uh, business cycle. We sent huge amounts of stimulus into the economy, which was temporary, and we withdrew that, we withdrew that stimulus. And so we were always going to get a manufacturing recession. You know, we, we had sort of 18 months where we were all at home buying stuff off the internet. How could you not have a manufacturing recession on the other side of that? So I think that misled people and made people think that this sort of recession was inevitable. But to me, the genuine demand destruction is coming from central banks. And I think we've just got to the point now where that's becoming sort of intractable. And so there is a, a worry here that I have that, you know, central banks are just going too far and they will drive this economy into recession. Is it inevitable? I don't think so. You know, I, I don't think any of this is inevitable. I don't think a genuine recession was inevitable. But I think that we may just end up with one anyway because of the way that central banks have behaved. And the basic problem here is that they've been sort of freaking out about this 1970s dynamic. You know, they were deeply concerned that the inflation was turning into the 1970s. That was never happening. You know, there, there was never really any genuine evidence that this was the 1970s repeated. But, you know, central banks had this sort of personal fear of repeating the mistakes of the past. And so, you know, if there is a recession, I think it's going to look quite different to the recessions that we've been in before. Because what really happened is central banks freaked out about inflation. They raised interest rates too aggressively. They caused these sort of non-linear problems in the banking sector. They then, you know, they could then get whipsawed into the reverse and, you know, having caused the economy to, to deteriorate too far, they would then ease policy quite quickly, I think. Mm. I just want to ask about the, the extraordinary sort of unusualness of the situation that we're in. You know, so if you look at, at interest rates in absolute terms, you know, four five percent around the place, that doesn't seem particularly high in historical terms. You know, you'd think that four percent is kind of perfectly normal interest rate for the UK, right? But the extraordinary thing about what we've seen recently is that you know, eighteen months ago, interest rates were more or less zero, nothing. And that had uh, distortionary effects on the market. And now, even though we've come up to what is a, a perfectly normal interest rate, we've done it at phenomenal speed. Uh, you know, 11, uh, we're, we're talking on the day of the embassy meeting. So presumably by the time people listen to this, 12 interest rate rises in a row. That's fairly unusual. And so the incentives inside um, the world of interest rates have changed so absolutely and so dramatically that it's hard for us to see exactly what will happen. And one of the things that I've been looking at this week and writing about is um, the shift to money market funds and how, you know, even a year ago, most UK investors had never even heard of a money market fund. There's been a need for them for so long because rates have been so low. People have been perfectly happy to take that, you know, 25 basis points or whatever it is difference between having money on deposit in a bank and having money in a, say, a money market fund or a guild or whatever. But now that you're talking about a difference between deposit rates at 1% tops and instant access and money market funds at 4%, there's this huge shift of money that as, as investor mindset changes. Um, you know, the, the point being that 
it's also unusual and so quick that the incentives inside it and the things that might or not break, might or might not break, are very uncertain. So it's it's hard to align what's happening now with any previous historical time. Is that fair? I, I think so. I, I, but I think that, you know, basically what we've had is that central banks sort of lied to us. You know, they told us that interest rates were going to be at zero forever. And they did that on purpose because that was part of the stimulus. And then in COVID, um, that sort of reached an extreme because central banks said, oh, my God, the economy may never recover from this. You know, we're going to be at interest rates at zero forever. And then we had the IMF writing about how the world was in a global liquidity trap, which was an obvious sort of red flag for anyone who was worried about inflation. Uh, and then, um, you know, a lot of investors have been totally caught out by this. And so in areas of the market, like, um, you know, the technology sector, particularly in the US, but, you know, elsewhere, um, you, know, you had this sort of long duration bet, this this idea that interest rates would be zero forever. And banks were part of this, too. You know, banks who had written mortgages, particularly fixed rate mortgages over the past sort of five, 10 years, um, you know, are now on the hook because, um, you know, they assumed that interest rates would never go up. And weirdly, uh, you know, policymakers have been looking at mortgage markets and they've been they've been taking a lot of uh, reassurance from the fact that, you know, there's much more fixed rate mortgages than there were in the past because interest rates going up don't hurt, um, you know, a mortgage holders as quickly as before. But they forgot about the banks because the banks on the other side of this. So suddenly, you know, all of these banks uh, are making losses and suddenly they're facing this multi-year um, squeeze of their profits. Now, I think, you know, the good thing about this, the encouraging thing, is that none of this has really been leveraged in the same way. So, you know, if you look at the sort of really nasty recessions of the past, you know, very simple story. You had long periods where asset prices went up a lot and debt went up a lot. And then the asset price went down, but the debt was fixed. And so you had these massive um, strains on balance sheets that led to these sort of very deep balance sheet recessions, you know, Japan in the early 90s, Sweden in the early 90s, uh, bits of dot com, you know, there were certain companies in the US that struggled with the same dynamic. And then subprime, you know, periphery debt in Europe, it was all that same story, you know, overinflated asset prices and massive debt binges. And this time we haven't had the debt. So, you know, there's a lot of investors that have been caught out by this. And banks are being caught out by this and profitability and returns are going to be lower than people expected. But I don't think we have that sort of deep underlying financial imbalance, particularly in terms of debt, that leads to the really nasty outcomes that we had in the past. And so you know, to go back to your question about historical precedent, the only one I can really find is uh, US banks in the sort of late 80s and 90s, which was the savings and loan crisis in the US. So you had this period where, you know, similar dynamic, you know, these banks had written all of these mortgages, interest rates went up a lot because central banks had to squeeze inflation. And then suddenly the profitability of these banks massively deteriorated. And then you had these sort of rolling bank failures that went on for years. Uh, and it didn't cause the sort of disruption, uh, sorry, destruction to the economy that subprime did because it didn't have the same levels of leverage or the same underlying problem. Hmm. You said earlier that the central banks lied to us. Uh, do you think they 
lied or do you think they just got it wrong because they're so used to very low inflation as a result of the global dynamics of say you know things like china joining the global economy low labor costs etc they got so used to the idea that inflation was going to stay low and their models simply extrapolate that it was less lying than believing uh, an inaccurate model yeah i mean i was exaggerating a little bit i know just checking i think there's an element of that you know (laughs) these central banks when they say uh, that interest rates are going to be zero for a long time. They do that because they want to uh, sort of drive, um, you know, faster growth. They, they want it. They want it to sort of uh, almost be self-defeating. You know, you, you you promise people interest rates are going to stay low, and you try and create the conditions where they won't stay low. And I don't think it's just central banks that did that. You know, I think um, the whole sort of period after the global financial crisis. Uh, created this psychology where you know we thought inflation would never come back, and uh, and you see it on the fiscal side, you know we we got to the point where people believed there was absolutely no limit to what fiscal you know what we could do on the fiscal side, and so and then COVID happens, and we we put all those lessons into effect. You know central banks do massive QE, they take interest rates to zero. They promise that interest rates will stay at zero. And then we have this massive fiscal stimulus on the idea that, you know, fiscal stimulus wasn't inflationary because we just never get inflation anymore. So you could argue that the whole of the economics profession and the whole of policymaking made this sort of error um, that sort of it's almost sowed the seeds of its own destruction. You know, the idea that inflation would never return was ironically the thing that made inflation return. It's this sort of inherent sort of Minsky moment in, in, in the way that economics works. And you see this through history. You know, we, we have these periods um, where when everybody believes something and it turns out that thing is wrong, it, it totally transforms the outlook. Interesting. Um, but you think, or I think you think, that this inflation is going away. You don't believe the 1970s story, which, by the way, a lot of the guests on on this podcast do believe. I hear a lot from from people about how we're already in a 1970s dynamic, and we're going to see, if not you know, steadily high inflation, extremely volatile inflation, which will hit high rates along along the way. So you know, there's a lot of people who don't believe for a second that this is over, and that while we may go back down towards the end of the year, we'll almost definitely go back up again after that. But I get the feeling that that's not what you believe. I, I think that I have a more subtle view on inflation. So Subtle is I good. Think, I like a subtle I, view. Not so I easy think, to headline, but good. I think that um, a lot of the inflation we've had over the last two years was transitory, a word that is now massively out of fashion. Um, I think that it was very similar to what happened after the Second World War, where you had this sort of one-off increase in the price level rather than this sort of spiraling of inflation. But I think that when you look at the world um, now compared to 2019, I think some things have changed and they're not going back. So the obvious one is um, supply chains. You know, I think that companies are rethinking their supply chains and that deglobalization, which was, you know, started way before this, is now accelerating. I think geopolitics has changed. Uh, you know, I think we have a cold war between uh, the US and China, which is just getting worse. We have a hot war in Europe. Uh, we have these big geopolitical shifts around that, you know, that change. 
we have a different type of economy, a sort of wartime economy, where governments feel that they have to be more interventionist and more involved. So things like industrial policy are coming back. And so, and I think you have labour shortages. You know, we didn't have these massive labour shortages back in 2019. And part of that is lots of people have dropped out of the labour market. But when you put all that together, I think that you're looking at a subtly different world, you know, over the next sort of 10 years, which is not that inflation is going to be sort of spiralling like it did in the 1970s, but for sure inflation is going to be a lot more volatile than we've been used to. You know, we're not going back to the great moderation. You know, we can argue about whether inflation is going to be 4% or 2%, but I'm not sure that's really the story here. I think we're in a world where we're going to have to live with supply problems much more than we did in the past. And so, you know, even though that's a a subtly different view on inflation, it's really important for financial markets because I think, firstly, um, there's going to be more periods like 2022 where you have stagflation, you know, you have sort of counter-cyclical inflation. And what that means is that, you know, bonds and equities, that correlation flips from negative to positive. And that's profoundly important for, you know, where bonds should trade and how you construct a portfolio. You know, 60-40 isn't going to work if you've got sort of reoccurring supply problems, not, not sort of 1970s permanent inflation, not wage price spirals, but periods of very high inflation are going to kill uh, returns in bonds. And so, you know, and I think the prevailing tendency of inflation has changed. So instead of um, inflation always being too low and central banks always trying to get inflation back up to 2%, I think 2% becomes a sort of floor on inflation rather than a ceiling. And so the whole basic task of monetary policy changes. So instead of central banks always looking to QE, always looking to zero interest rates, always trying to get inflation back, this is going to be a world where central banks are always trying to stop inflation going too high. And that's just a totally different investment world. So, you know, it's a secular bear market in bonds, not as extreme as the 1970s, but I think it's a secular bear market. I think the term premium in bonds is wildly too low because that term premium reflects um, the great moderation and the fact that, you know, bonds had this perfect insurance property for equities. So you almost paid a premium to own bonds and put them in your portfolio. That world is gone. And I think it changes the, the equity market because, um, you know, in the old world, you just put money into long duration tech or US stocks. You didn't put it into, you know, Europe or the UK. And you got, you know, those those returns just, you know, went through the roof. You just It just got constantly re-rated on the basis that interest rates would be lower and lower and lower and that world is gone so you need to be as an investor you need to think well how is this world changing what are the big themes for the next five ten years how do i get exposure to those themes it's not just about you know a big long duration punt which is what the last decade was all about we're going to come back to the equity market in a minute. But before we do that, I just want to ask you about inflation in general. You know, there is a view that consistently higher inflation than we've been used to for a decade is not necessarily a bad thing because it will help us deal with some of the public debt problems we have. And also it will it will help um, with the housing market. You know, it'll help bring down some of those real debt levels in the housing market and it'll it'll help well, debt across the board because I know we were talking earlier about uh, this not being necessarily a problem of leverage as it has been in the past, but none the, none the, 
nonetheless, there is a, a big public debt problem and private debt shot through the system. So, you know, a decade of reasonably high inflation will help get us out of that bind. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I sort of agree. It depends where you are with inflation. Um, you know, if you have inflation in the sort of 3 to 5% range, and it's consistently there, then, you know, that's going to make a huge difference to um, the things that you said, you know, debt deleveraging. Um, you know, I think history teaches us we basically have two ways to deal with debt problems. One of them is what economists call the conventional approach, which is probably wrongly named, but that's austerity, structural reform. Uh, that's what we tried after the global financial crisis. And the other way is what economists call the unconventional approach, which is you inflate away the debt, you use some form of financial repression, or you write it off or you send your currency down so you don't pay it back in sort of international terms. And that is much more the normal way, isn't it? That's much more how we've got rid of debt over the years. In fact, it's kind of the only way. Austerity is a tricky, tricky way to try and do this. Every time we've tried austerity, it's been a disaster. So, you know, UK uh, in the sort of 1920s, you know, while the rest of the world was having the roaring 20s, we had a sort of depression, you know, with mass unemployment and deflation uh, because we were so desperate to get back onto the gold standard. Um, and after 2010, you know, I would say that austerity was a disaster too. And actually many of the problems that we face in the UK right now are because people are just, you know, fundamentally pissed off after a, a decade of austerity. You know, the fact that public sector workers have seen their incomes consistently squeezed for a decade, they're now saying, right, that's enough. <laughs> you know, we can't go back to that. And so, you know, I think austerity was a disaster. I think that actually this new world uh, promises to be slightly better. You know, I don't think it's the 1970s. So I don't think we're going to be stuck with inflation at sort of five, you know, 10 percent. But I think if it's in that slightly higher range and it's about the tendency of inflation that is changing, as I said, I don't think that's a bad outcome. And I think central banks would readily accept that, even though they would deny it at every opportunity. So if you ask any of these central bankers right now, you know, is 3% inflation all right? They will say, no, absolutely not. In reality, if you offered them 3% inflation for the next five years, they would bite your hand off at that. They just can't say it. Because, you know, they, they should have changed their inflation targets back in 2019. They didn't. They can't do it now. You know, if you can't hit your inflation target, you can't raise that inflation target because it's an admission of defeat. If you had changed the target in 2019 when, it, when inflation was below 2%, it would have been sort of aspirational. You know, you would have to try really hard to get inflation up. Now, you know, you, you're basically saying, well, we don't have a target anymore if you admit that. So I think, you know, we're back to central banks telling lies again. <laughs> and, you know, I think that um, they, they can't be honest about this. Uh, but, you know, the, the environment that they're scared of is not persistent 3% inflation. You know, they're scared of that 1970s dynamic because none of these central bankers want to go down in history as the idiots who let it happen again. You know, we spent the last... 30 years talking about, you know, the policy mistakes of the 1970s and Arthur Burns and these guys that went down history as complete clowns. So you can understand why these central banks, you know, don't want to be talked about as a sort of case study in monetary failure in 40 years time. Yeah, poor Arthur Burns. 
Poor Arthur Burns, actually. We should do a whole podcast on the miseries of Arthur Burns. I think he's been slightly misjudged by history, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So let's go back to equity markets then. Uh, so we can't do what we were doing before, which is a great shame because it was super easy if it felt a little bit too easy, and it clearly was a little bit too easy. Uh, what do we do now? How do we approach investing? Well, I mean, it wasn't, it was easy, but it was something that you could replace with automation. So I'm not sure that long term it was really that great. You know, it didn't take a great deal of thought to buy US fangs, did it? I mean, <laughs> no, it really didn't, though. Of course, it took an awful lot of thought to not buy them, which was a mistake <laughs> that a lot of us made. That's true. So I think that, um, you know, I think basically you need to think about themes. So, what are the themes for the next decade? Uh, deglobalization, climate change, uh, carbonomics, um, AI to some extent, although I, I think there's a massive amount of hype around that right now. Um, you know, I think you, you, you're thinking about themes, you're thinking about an economy that behaves differently. So, you know, inflation that's slightly higher, uh, periods where, um, you know, bonds won't help you. And so you're almost, you know, you're, 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 you're looking for different sectors within the equity market. And so one of the things I've talked about, you know, over the last 18 months is what I call the tangible 20s, which is this idea that, you know, the 2010s is all about intangibles, you know, about tech, about long duration. I think now you want exposure to tangible things. And, you know, those are typically the sorts of things that do better in a higher inflation regime. So I think you're looking at... Um, Things like commodities, uh, materials, uh, semiconductors, anything exposed to decarbonomics, anything exposed to friendshoring and reshoring, and all of that sort of stuff. You know, so you know, I think you want a different. Um, I mean, you asked me about equities, but in bonds, I think you just want a smaller allocation to bonds, and you want to find bits of the equity market that almost replace bonds in those periods of stagflation. So you know, commodities. Uh, is a sort of obvious replacement if you're talking about uh, not persistently high inflation, but those periods where inflation is a problem and bonds sell off because of the inflation. Okay, so in in uh, in equities in particular, we want to be heading towards tangible things, industrials, etc. Now, as I know my listeners quite well, I can tell you exactly what they're thinking right now, and what they're thinking is mm, reshoring. Industrial reindustrialization of, say, the Midlands of the UK. That sounds interesting. I don't really know what companies I would buy uh, to make that uh, theme part of my portfolio. So I tell you what I'll do. I'll go out and I'll buy some buy-to-let houses in the Midlands. Should they do that? That's what they're thinking. I know they are. And write, write to me, listeners, if I'm wrong, but I know that's what you're thinking because everything ends up on should I buy another house? Everything. Well, this, I mean, this is the point, isn't it? It's going to be harder. You have to sort of do a bit more research before you buy, buy stocks. Um, in terms of housing, you know, I think that, um, you know, clearly we're in a difficult period for housing right now just because the speed of the moves in interest rates, you know, it's, it's, I think it's more about the speed than the level of interest rates. Uh, interest rates have moved very, very quickly. And so, um, you know, people get immediately squeezed uh, because of that move in interest rates. I think over time, I think the housing market can actually live with higher levels of interest rates. And the reason for that is that it's not just the interest rate that matters, it's income. And so if we're in a world where 
nominal wages and nominal profits are growing more quickly than they were in the past because there's more inflation, then actually you 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 start to live with higher levels of interest higher levels of interest rates and you get used to it. And so I think, you know, at the moment I, I wouldn't want exposure to anything related to housing, you know, over the next sort of 18 months. On a five-year horizon, I think that the housing market copes with that sort of environment. And if you look at um sort of co- look at commercial property uh, and you look at how it responds to inflation, um, you know, clearly uh, very high levels of inflation are bad, but this sort of moderate inflation that we're talking about, I, I don't see that as a as a bad environment. I just think right now, I I wouldn't touch any of this stuff. It's it, you know, again, it's this conflict between a recession risk, which is you know fairly imminent, and the longer term. And I think they're demanding you to do very different things as an investor. All right, that's housing sorted. That'll make everyone satisfied. Let me ask you two quick questions before I before I let you go, because I'm sure you have more recessions to think about. Um, if you had to hold something for 10 years, starting now, I know you're not a stock picker, so I'm not asking you for a specific stock recommendation, but if you had to take one of your sectors, one particular area to invest in right now and hold for 10 years, what do you think it might be? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not a stock picker. I tend to do it in in terms of themes. Yeah, so I so you've got a lot of themes. What's your favourite? I, I think okay. it, well, no, I think it's all about value stocks. So if you think about growth versus value, and you can get the data on this back to you know the 1920s, um, you see that the 2010s period was just really, really bizarre and weird. You know that constant outperformance of uh, growth over value. There is no other period in history that it behaved like that, and it was an it was an artifact of zero interest rates and sort of endless QE and the idea that interest rates would be at zero forever. I think if we're looking at a different sort of world, um, then we go back to sort of more historic norms, which is where value starts to outperform. So I would, you know, I, I'd be sort of very long value at this point on that sort of horizon, you know, over the next six months, value could get absolutely hosed just because, you know, central banks are cutting interest rates again and we've got a recession fear. And, you know, we've seen the tendency of investors to jump back into all of those sort of crappy tech stocks as soon as they think interest rates are going down again. Yeah, we've seen that this year already. Um, okay, that's exactly what the listeners like to hear as well. Very, very value oriented listeners, I think we have on this podcast. And final question, and um, this is a this is a, not a trick question, but there is an answer that I know we all expect: um, gold or Bitcoin? <laughs> I think I know what the answer is. You expect? <laughs> you don't have to give the expected answer. You can answer however you like, but we'll well, sneer if you give the wrong one. Well, I mean, you know, Bitcoin has basically been a sort of digital tulip, as far as I can see, for the last sort of four or five years. Um, and I, you know, I actually wrote about this, the sort of similarities between what was happening with cryptocurrencies during the pandemic and tulip mania, because they both happened sort of backdrop of a pandemic. If you look at the sort of breakout of the plague in that period in, in Amsterdam, you know, when all that stuff was kicking off, you basically had these sort of bored traders sitting around in taverns bidding up the price of the price of tulips and i think we we had a sort of you know uh, an element of that you know to me um bitcoin has behaved like a sort of long duration extremely speculative asset and i don't think that's how um gold behaves and i think if we're in a world where you've got more 
um, sort of secular inflation, then I think you know gold does better in that environment. I don't know how Bitcoin behaves in that environment because we've never had that environment before with Bitcoin. That'll be the interesting bit, but I think we can probably guess how it might behave. Um, Dario, that was the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for being yeah. with us today. We hugely appreciate it. No worries. Good to be on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's Marin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts positively if you can. This episode was hosted by me, Marin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Samasadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Dario Perkins and, of course, to John Stepek. And finally, your weekly reminder, your important reminder to sign up to John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.